I think you can make an interesting story out of anything because if you have a goal, no matter what the business is, there's a journey involved in getting there. Everyone can relate to a journey. That was Lauren Fleshman, co-founder of Piggy Bars, and these are the Brandwagon Interviews. Lauren, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I am so excited that you're here. So many questions I have for you. Oh, thanks. I'm still riding high after your mile. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm glad one of us is riding high. I mean, I feel good. That was honestly a personal best for me. That's good. I feel like my coaching maybe helped a little bit. It did help. It really, it honestly, (laughs) honestly did. Good. Although I will say when you called up the time after the first lap, I was terrified. And you're, <laughs> like, you you're like, a minute 28, you're sub six. I was like, oh no, I, I cannot. <laughs> what I cannot have I keep, done? What have I done to myself? I cannot keep going and doing Exactly what you say you're not going to do. Yeah. Don't worry, professional athletes do the same thing. They do exactly what they promise themselves they won't do on the first lap. Well, that was your advice. Mm-hmm. Your advice was yeah. do not come out of the gates that fast. There you go. And I was like, am I going fast? I don't know. And I had my watch go. I was like, don't look at the watch. Don't look at the watch. <laughs> yep. Um, uh, but yeah, that was awesome. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you, you bet. For indulging us. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've heard you're you're learning the violin. I am learning the violin. How's that, how's that going? Well, um, I'm not going to be having any shows anytime <laughs> soon. <laughs> but yeah, I don't. I'm really enjoying it. I think that you know, being a coach and an entrepreneur, I think it's helpful sometimes to be a beginner at something. And um, at least that's the excuse I used for finally signing up for lessons for the violin, which is like, hey, I know nothing about this instrument and it'll be hard and I'll remember what it's like to be new. And um, it actually did end up helping my coaching a lot. And it kind of helps you think outside the box or lateral thinking in business too, to learn something new. So I recommend it. Did you, when you set out to do it, did you purposely think like, I want to be a beginner at something and this is a good thing? Yes. You did? Yeah, that's what I did. I mean, it was one of those things where I've had a violin sitting around for a couple years and have wanted to play it. But I kept not doing it, not doing it. And it was the motivation to learn something new and be a beginner and what the positive ramifications could be that got me to finally take the leap. That's so, so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. I mean, not many people will actually put themselves in those positions, though, I feel like. To actually say, like, yes, I want to be a beginner at something. Yeah. I want to go back to, to the beginning. Mm-hmm. I want to try something really hard mm-hmm. that I know, you know people spend a lifetime trying to master. Yeah. That's crazy. It is It is kind of weird. And I can see like in business alone with my work at Picky Bars, I would wa- I would think I would have like that be enough to make me learn a new instrument, be a beginner or something. But for some reason, I don't know, there's something about the work environment that I'm like, there's already enough new stimulus here. I just can't wrap my head around it. It's the coaching that I do on the side for professional athletes that really kind of like forces me out of my comfort zone more often because it's just person to person. You're trying to t- teach them something new and they aren't getting it. And you're like, why aren't you getting it? Whereas business can be so much more kind of, I don't know, it's just, it's not person to person in the same way. It's just hard to know where you're coming up short, what's really landing with people. I can see like, the vacant stare in the athlete's yeah. eyes if something isn't landing. And it's just gotcha. like, okay, I need to figure out a new way to bring this yeah. to you. Yeah. Um, like so. you're saying when you're looking at numbers or something, yeah. it can be hard to know why, like, why is this up? Why is this down? Yes, and exactly. you dig in and you dig in and there's more reasoning and there's mm, more reasoning. It's, it's almost like, endless sometimes. Yeah, it, totally. Yeah. Yes. And I think that's one of the great challenges with having all the data, Yeah. right? Is like, you have all this data sitting here. Yep. It's supposed to make it easier to make decisions, but mm-hmm. I, it's so easy to get like analysis paralysis. It right? is. And it's also easier to kind of create a story for yourself that everything's fine. 
yes. <laughs> on the flip totally. side yep. that you're like, well, this is hard to figure out. So I'm just going to assume it's not me. But yeah, with the coaching, it's very clear. Like, oh no, this is me. I need to find a new way to communicate this. So yeah, then that motivated me to learn violin and then that helped my coaching. And I know it has spilled over into business too. So it's good. That's amazing. Yeah. All right. So look, you have an amazing story. You are one of the world's like fastest athletes. You are an entrepreneur. You have, you know, helped other brands grow, changed, I would say, some of their values along mm -hmm. the way of some of the world's biggest <laughs> brands. You're sitting with us here today. Like, what? Tell us our. Tell us your story. Sure. Yeah, I had kind of a storied collegiate career. Like one of the lucky few that gets recruited out of college to be a professional. And won two U.S. titles, was seventh in the world once, was on a few U.S. teams at world championships, and just had a great time. And what I got my start doing in that sport was learning about being a marketing asset for other people. You know, people will sponsor you in exchange for being able to use your image and your likeness and having you promote their products and offerings and whatever, right? And I am pitching myself to companies as a good investment. You're saying, when you're saying you're a marketing asset, yeah. like it's the realization that if you're working with Nike, mm -hmm. that you, they are going to use you yep. to market them. Yes. So for me- That's a weird thing, right? Like, like that must be very bizarre yes. to sit there and try to evaluate yourself. Like, am I a, is my value as an asset growing? Is it decreasing? What's the angle? Like, how do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, well, in my sport, you're never more valuable than right out of college because the collegiate system has this kind of whole machine of marketing around it. Sports information directors and universities pumping out stories about their sports teams in order to drive more applications, right? But as soon as you graduate, the sport of track and field, along with most individual Olympic sports, it's like people only care once every four years. And so the reporters don't really care. People aren't writing stories about you. So for each year that you're out of college, you become less and less valuable in a way. There's always like somebody who's slower than you right out of college yeah. who has more of a more relevant recent brand. Um, and so what I realized in the sport after a few years was I was getting faster. I won my first national championship. And I had this story that I thought, well, when I become a national champion, then people will care. Then stories will be written. And then that'll, you know, make sure that I'm valuable enough to continue my sponsorships and all that stuff. And it just didn't happen. It was okay. like crickets. You're like, wow, I have to take control of my own story. I need to find ways to put myself out there. I can't be waiting for a reporter to knock on the door. And and that realization and taking the you know, having the courage to dive into that and lean into that really set me up for everything else that's come. That's a huge realization. Yeah, big time. I feel like there's so many people, this happened to us actually early days, where you make something and you put it out on the web and you're like, is never gonna find it? Yeah. <laughs> They're just gonna just come across it now. And we're like, I remember being terrified of what we were writing our first copy on the website. Yeah. Because we thought, like, oh, if we say something that we can't deliver on or isn't exactly right or whatever, and then no one saw it. So <laughs> that that realization that you have to actually tell your story. Yeah. And that there might be an amazing story there, but if you're not telling it, what does it matter? Absolutely. And, you you know, at first it kind of felt not fair. I was like, I don't want to have to tell my own story. Yeah. I want people to just come and figure it out and whatever. I think that I just thought that's how stuff worked. But then, then it became a real opportunity. So I'm like, I get to be in charge of my own story. I get to determine what is seen and what is not seen. And I get to hopefully, maybe, possibly affect people's lives in some way. You know, because people, I think what I realized with track and field was that, People don't really care how fast you run. They care about how you make them feel. 
And that's kind of the same thing with business that mm -hmm. I've learned and carried over into business is they care about how you make them feel. So all of marketing and storytelling for me comes back to that. A lot of times it's creating something for free, but you're doing it because you want to you make them feel something. Hopefully that comes back in the business side, but even if it doesn't, each time it's still worthwhile. So even though you were busy training yeah. and you know, doing the best races of your life and winning national championships, in that busy moment, you kind of realized, I have to tell this story and I, yeah. have, to, and I have to help people feel something because of your story. Yes. And so my contract with Nike was up um, for renewal. I was out for maybe three years out of college and national champion and thinking, wow, I have to- I've done it. Uh, yeah, that seems like, like I dream. should get like, a okay, great yeah, next contract. Yeah. This will be this will be great. And I was like, realizing that it wasn't that simple. That there were always going to be a new crop of collegiates coming out. So, um, so you are winning national championships. Mm -hmm. You have these relationships with companies. You're doing everything you thought you should do, and you're also so busy, and you figured out that you have to tell your story, right? Yes. Well, first, what I thought I would do is try to initiate change from within the biggest sports brand in the world. So I sent a 2 a.m. email guessing the CEO's email address based on a pattern of people's email addresses yeah. who was emailing regularly at <laughs> Nike. I was just like, oh, let me put that formula in with CEO's <laughs> name and see what happens. And um, the CEO replied, Mark Parker replied. And he, I, I had basically said that I felt that there were a few things I wanted to talk about. But one was that I felt that athletes weren't being used. They were sort of stuck on a shelf and the brand wasn't really promoting the athletes. And so the longer you were with the company, you actually became less valuable. And I communicated that to him. Right. And also I had some issues with the way women were being represented in their marketing campaigns. It was- They when weren't it, actually using female athletes, right? It's no, they were using models yeah. for the most part for women. And so for male, to sell male sports clothes, they were using um, male athletes. And to sell female sports clothes, they were using female models. And so it was this kind of not even so subtle message that even an elite athlete's body isn't appropriate for selling clothes. Like it has to be on a, a stick thin, yeah. you know, non non-muscled, non-curvy, waved, yeah, waved person, yeah, yeah. which is a person too. Yeah. <laughs> but they were plenty represented yeah. <laughs> across all like brand totally. media. Yes, so yes. Um, I just felt like, hey, you've got you're already paying these people. We're on the payroll. Why not put us in the ads? And it can help create at least one other type of body, or if you go across track and field, there's a, a broad diversity of body types in track and field with the throws, jumps, and sprints and distance events. Like you will, you have a huge opportunity here. And um, and so I talked to the CEO about that. And it was such a trip driving up to Portland, That's crazy. going in his office, like looking around at all those weird little like art trinkets. <laughs> I mean, like what, what planet am I on right now? And I had a really positive experience with my meeting with him and stuff changed. Like they- From one meeting? Yeah, one meeting, stuff changed. And, you know, not everything changed. And I would have a later meeting years later where I, things didn't go as well. But in that particular moment, I felt like a person can make a difference. I, yeah, I just, I ended up flying to Kauai and being part of their first ever Nike women's catalog featuring athletes wow. and had my own little Nike commercial 15 second spot for a little while. And kind of, I really wanted to be a face for the sport, not because of just like wanting people to know who I was. I mean, there's a part of everybody that wants recognition, I think, but there was uh, something deeper than that, which was that I really wanted to make a positive impact on girls coming up through the sport and kind of helping them avoid some of the pitfalls that 
of eating disorders and other things. And I was like, if I can have a platform, I can make a bigger difference there. And all I wanted was the company that was sponsoring me to kind of help me with that. And they were already paying me. So I was like, why not? Yeah, I'm so here. I want to do that it. That is amazing, first of all. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> it seems like, just to play it back, like you you basically realized the story that they were telling was not the right true story. Yes. And that like more people were going to feel the right thing mm-hmm. if they were telling a, a better story of representation. Yes. And that connected the highest level of mm-hmm. Nike. Mm-hmm. And then they changed that aspect of how they were marketing and advertising. They did. Yeah. That's so amazing. That's <laughs> it's, it's crazy. Not, it's not very easy to change the opinions <laughs> of a brand of Nike scalers. <laughs> it is, uh, you know, it's, they say it's really difficult to steer a big ship, to change the direction of a big ship. And, and I did come up, when, when I tried to push for more and more types of changes, I found that I came up against more of the expected barriers. But that particular barrier, I think, was easier to to move them on because it was so clear their brand values and what they were doing on the men's side was so different from what they were doing on the women's side that it's hard to ignore the inequality when it's stacked side by side in front of your face. Some of the other things that all like big corporations struggle with can be a little bit more amorphous than that. Um, And, you know, I think that like, they don't get as much of an instant reward when they change certain aspects of their business that are more internally focused, but it's a good business decision for them to yeah. make that change yeah. too. So I think they were kind of like, oh yeah, we should just do this. <laughs> this is in better alignment. That's that's crazy. Yeah. And it's cool to see the power. I'm sure, how old were you when you were doing that? Uh, 23. Yeah. No, 25. 25. That's also quite insane. Yeah, well, and I just was up stewing. I was doing my typical thing that I do, which is like over any injustice, I sit there and I just stew and I'm <laughs> like a miserable person to be around. And it was, you know, it was my husband. I got to give him credit that he was like, just do something. Email the CEO. I don't know. Do something. And I was like, should I really? <laughs> so he kind of helped guide that fury. That's awesome. Well, it's good fury. <laughs> yeah. So one of the reasons I'm so excited that you're here today is you're such an incredible storyteller. One of the questions we get from our audience often is, well, I want to tell stories or I want my brand to be more interesting, but my brand's boring or my products are boring or my people are boring. What do boring businesses or boring people who think they don't have a story like? What should they do? Yeah, I think that you know you'd just be surprised that there are there are a lot of people interested in your story, and that if you don't try to win everybody over and you try to go narrow but deep with the people who do care about what you're saying, just focus on them. I think that it's a lie to believe that anyone's story is boring. I mean, you just have to tell the story truthfully and let people in on what's real. And that is what makes a heart connection with somebody. They can tell bullshit versus what's real. So I think that the big leap for me was when I decided that I got to decide my story was worthwhile versus, oh, when I reach the Olympics and win a medal, then my story is worthwhile. I just said, no, my story is already worthwhile. I decided it was worthwhile and started telling it. Now other people think my story is worthwhile. You said my story is universally worthwhile. It's not. 15 years ago, people would have said, no, your career is pointless until you win a medal. None of it matters, right? So I think that I would just encourage businesses to lean into their story and lean into the failures. It was actually the telling of my failures, failures by someone else's ideas of approval that connected with people the most. And that's what we do at Picky Bars too, the things that didn't go as planned, because that's relatable. Most of the things we do don't go as planned, right? And then when you do have victories, people have been along for the ride with you, and they, they're rooting for you, and they want to celebrate with you. I think you can make an interesting story out of anything, because if you have a goal 
no matter what the business is, there's a journey involved in getting there. Everyone can relate to a journey. And that's what I did. I was, from what, you know, a lot of listeners of this show might think, like, how could you possibly have success starting an advice blog for runners and telling stories about this obscure 5,000-meter race distance that you travel around doing? Like, why would anybody read yeah. that? But they're, you know, the people that did really enjoyed it, they and they really shared care. it with other people they knew would care. And so it spread person to person in a very direct way with the people that it would have been really hard for me to find with targeted advertising. That just was direct. Because it was so focused. It was so focused. Yeah, absolutely. And the the thing that I, the reason that I started to do it was because I was fortunate enough to sign that second contract with Nike. It was a six-year deal. And, but now I was no longer naive. I knew that I had to create value for myself and that the media wasn't going to do it. And that I wanted to be valued, not just for my performances, but for who I was and the things I said and the ways I made people feel so that when my next contract came up, I could hopefully still have a future in the sport doing what I loved. And to be honest, like toiling away, running every day and lifting weights or whatever was like pretty lonely. Yeah. So there was an element of it too that it, it wasn't purely altruistic or something and it wasn't purely about business. It was community. Like I, I liked knowing that I was putting things out there. Somebody was reading it. People would comment, and it, it made me feel a little more connected to the running community. And, and then I ended up learning a lot about the running community. I'm sure. And then also because it's so focused, mm-hmm. the people who care about it, they probably have similar challenges and struggles. Like if they're running by themselves or lifting by themselves or whatever, like they want a community too. Yeah, absolutely. That's really cool. Yeah. So you were running, and mm-hmm. then I know you had some injuries mm-hmm. that kept you from the Olympics, yep. which is sad. Yeah, it was sad, yep. Definitely um, missed the Olympics by one place in 2008. Yeah. And then I came away with a broken foot that required surgery. And so I was going to be out for about a year. And that actually was the moment when I really went. I doubled down on my blogging. I like created a new web refresh and I started a business. And that's when Picky Bars was born. I also started creating a book. Like I kind of just went crazy and was just doing like four different things. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm going to be out of the sport for a while. I need to use my brain. I want to learn something else. Like I fully expected anything, to, everything I did to fail at that point. I expected Picky Bars to fail. I didn't expect to find a publisher for my book. But I thought, you know, I'm going to get some experience here and whatever I gain, I can use for the next thing. Did you, when you were making the, and I want to get deeper into everything you just said, but when you were making that decision in that Mm -hmm. moment and you're saying like, I'm going to try all these different things, I'm going to basically layer on all these different risks. Yeah. How did you, you did that to keep busy. You did that, I'm guessing, like because to double down on the community, Mm -hmm. but you weren't really afraid of failure, right? No. And I was doing things that were pretty low risk, really. You know, I didn't go around seeking investment and making big promises and then being beholden to people. I started really small, you know, in creating picky bars, it was an energy bar. I didn't make more than I could sell. And when I sold them, then I had money to make more and I grew it very slowly and organically, which I know is a privilege and a luxury that I could do that. I had an income from another thing, but that's not uncommon with startups is people have their job and then they do this side side hustle for a while until it becomes, you know, real enough to become your main thing. So I did that. It wasn't, it really wasn't very scary. It felt like I just really assumed it would fail at some point. And I was like, whatever. But you weren't afraid of that. No, I wasn't afraid of it at Is all. Is that like why, why? Because so many people get hung up. I feel like in the moment that you just described, you're yeah. like set back on your career mm-hmm. and you're like, well, 
I guess I should write a book. I guess I should make an energy bar company. Yes. I guess I should start doing all these other different things. That's <laughs> often, the, I feel like a lot of people would go into themselves in that moment and be very afraid of what's next. Yeah. Or afraid of changing direction. It seems like you were the opposite. Like, Yeah, I definitely had some moments of fear at first. Like when the surgeon said, you know, 50-50 chance you'll be able to have a racing career again. I just chose not to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> and I did have, like I said, I had a massive privilege of still being under contract and getting paid. I wasn't getting paid what I was before, but I had enough to have food on my table and a roof over my head. So I did have the privilege of being able to take some calculated risks and not need any of them to stick quickly. Because I did know that, okay, if none of these stick, I can apply for jobs I'll at least have something on my resume that isn't, I ran around 12 and a half laps around a track or I ran a mile in four minutes and 23 <laughs> yeah, seconds. Yeah, like, yeah. I also learned some stuff about, you know, like food production and marketing and like had to build a website, had to learn like how to take payment from people, like, just basics yeah. at least that I'd have something to talk about in, an, in a job interview. And so I looked at it as really all upside. And if any of those things worked, great. Then I just run with them. And there was a lot of really good intention in those projects that I was doing. And the intention was to improve people's lives in my community. And so I was like, if you can improve people's lives in your community and that works for six months and the business isn't viable, you still improve people's lives for six months. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it just really did feel, it really did feel like a win-win at the time. And so tell me, what's the origin story of Picky Bars? Like for those in our audience who don't know it, like what is it and how is it different and all yeah. that stuff? Yeah. Well, I learned a lot about nutrition as a professional athlete, just like you learn a lot about everything that has to do with high performance, right? You become a like a finely tuned, obsessive person with anything that can get you one second faster. And that is not very relatable. <laughs> I realized this. I retired three years ago. But it ended up with, you know, that with kind of me learning a lot of things that I that I suddenly became like, wow what can I do with this that isn't just helping myself run faster? I was motivated and had the time to study nutrition for my own needs. So maybe somebody else could benefit from that. But um, the thing that really got Picky Bar started was my husband graduated from business school. The, account, the economy crashed. He, had, he was basically, in some ways, unemployable or the employment options were bleak because people were firing MBAs everywhere at that time or laying them off because they were too expensive. And here he was with his fresh MBA, like, cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he had been doing triathlon during his MBA program just to stay fit. And he was having a lot of digestive problems while doing it. It was like the more he exercised, the more, to be frank, gas was involved. Mm. <laughs> it was unpleasant. Don't want Everyone that. was trying to solve this problem yeah. in the house. And, um, <laughs> you stay over there. I'll stay over here. Yeah. <laughs> And this thing that was bringing him so much joy, triathlon, was like really putting a lot of strain on his system. And so I was just personally motivated to solve a problem with somebody I loved. I didn't think that it would become anything more than that. They didn't have a name at this point. They were just in a baking dish and I was mixing ingredients. And the reason I even bothered making it was that I was like, okay, it seems like wheat and dairy bother your stomach when you're training. You can have it. You just can't have it all the time. So we need a snack that doesn't have it. Easy. Let's go to the energy bar aisle. Let's take a look at what the options are. So we're looking at kind of the ones yeah. that are low or free from those things. And it's um, you can only find them in sort of like the whole foodie type grocery section, which the ratios of carbs, protein, and fat are totally off for sports no nutrition. There, yeah. They're not the right thing. They don't actually fuel you properly. And then when you go to the sports performance side of the aisle, you have all these things that there's sports nutrition and science and research to, and there's reasons why each ingredient is in that product in the amount that it is. 
but those things were full of weird lab-created ingredients and things you couldn't pronounce and like wheat and dairy and kind of cheap fillers and stuff. So I was like, why isn't there a real food bar balanced for sport? I don't understand why this doesn't exist. And I was just pissed because I don't really like cooking that and you much. you like to stew on things. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I was like, I'll just make you one. And so... <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> yeah. So I kind of started with a Laravar as simple as I could, calculated the ratios and was like, that's not right. How can I make this but better and, you know, right? And then I just tinkered with it and blew through about eight mixer uh, motors until... Really? Yeah, seriously. It's really dense. Yeah. It's not... It's meant for a commercial um, mixer. Mm. I'll tell you that. I learned that the hard way. But yeah, we... Eventually, I figured out something that would work and... And then um, my husband luckily had an MBA that was sitting on a shelf. So he there was like, go. I can help with this. <laughs> and our friend Steph was a, my friend Steph, she was um, professional marathoner, still is. She's one of the best in the, in the world, actually. She has two, I think, top 10 finishes at world marathon majors. Oh, wow. And she discovered she was celiac around this time. Okay. So it was just kind of, it seemed like everywhere I looked, there was somebody who needed something to help them feel better when exercising. I was like, there's got to be a group of people that want this. So we decided to give it a shot. That's cool. Yeah. And they're delicious. Thanks. Yeah. And one thing we did that was pretty cool at the time was we we were pretty early to the subscription model. Um, so this was like 2011. And really all I had to go off of was wine clubs. I lived in the Willamette Valley in okay. Oregon. So yeah. it's like Pinot Noir country. And you could join a wine club and you could get wine delivered. And that was awesome. But outside of that, there wasn't really a lot of like, I think Dollar Shave Club existed or yeah, something right like that. Then, yeah. 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 And so we were like, why don't we make this thing? Like, we don't know anything about distribution. We're not going to get in grocery stores with these giants. Why don't we find a way to get these directly to people so they don't have to think about it on a regular basis? Yeah. And we created kind of a really basic subscription club. And that That's has very ended up, prescient. That's like very... I mean, people are still barely figuring that out. Yeah. And like to do that in 2011 and say like, actually, you, if you like this and you're training and you're working out, you're going to want this on a consistent basis. So we're going to make a subscription, which is way better for you. Yes. <laughs> much, much better. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's I so mean, cool. that's one of the things I think I'm most proud of looking back was it's fun to be small and nimble enough to respond to the needs of people really quickly. And then I thought I was contrasting that with my daily experiences working within a brand that was gargantuan yeah. with Nike, which there's all these amazing smart people and so many of them really want to make changes like that on the fly, but it can be challenging because you're working within a big system and they do their best and they can do really great work. And, you know, obviously being bigger has its other benefits, but I had this lovely kind of living in both worlds situation at the time where anytime I got frustrated with big business. I was like, I have this little business and I'm just going to try it. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And so what you said earlier is that if you are, if you have a story, mm -hmm. but you're not telling it, mm -hmm. then no one's going to connect with it. No one's going to feel anything. So you end up making this bar, the yep. picky bar, delicious, mm -hmm. uh, real food for <laughs> athletes. How did you figure out how to tell the story? Like how did you differentiate this? Yeah. So what I really did was I focused on doubling down on my own personal blog and the free content that I was providing for people in my community so that they were getting a direct benefit from me. And then I was only one degree of separation from picky bars. So if they connected with me, they would be able to connect with picky bars. And, and you I'm, just knew that. You, you knew yeah. that Well, like, I knew that because that's why companies pay you, right, yeah. as a marketing asset. They yeah. hope that people will watch you run around a track or hear your interview and then go buy Nike sneakers or whatever it is. And they... And, and, and that they're, it obviously works because they sponsor people all the time. And, and actually, before I made Picky Bars, 
I had this little sponsorship with Power Bar, and I was starting to figure out business at that point and figure out marketing, and I really wanted to contribute in a more meaningful way on the nutrition side with them. And I reached out, and I had kind of these ideas, and like this, the you were company- stewing. You were yeah, stewing, and you had ideas. I did. Yeah. And the company <laughs> wasn't really built to take inbounds and pivot and change and do anything like that. They were like, here's our ambassador model. You fit into that bucket. This is what we need from you. And I was like, you have- so you have like gold mines in here with all your athletes if you could figure out how to use them. So once I started my own business, I was like, I can, I can be my own uh, marketing asset. Like why sell somebody else's product yeah. when I could sell my own product yeah. with the work that I'm doing? And I can tell that story more directly. So the brand of Picky Bars and my personal brand have a huge Venn diagram overlap in the middle. We aren't the same person because the business needs to be able to survive outside of me. But as far as just values go things I put out into the world, themes about life, and it's something anybody could do in their content. Like, what are your values? And how do you, yeah. how do you figure that out? How do you figure out, I mean, how do you figure out what your values are in a like crystallized way? Yeah, so I guess what started for me was why do people like me in the sport? What, the people that follow me, why do they follow me? Why do they care? And I did a bunch of brainstorming around it. Like, why do they follow me instead of so-and-so, Yeah. right? And what I sort of realized was that I feel like, and I don't know this for sure, you'd have to pull people, my gut was that I was a person who cared about performance, but I didn't take myself too seriously. Like, I was able to be irreverent and connect with people. I, didn't, I wasn't elitist. I didn't have this kind of elite athletes are here, and then Joe Jogger's over here. It was like, we're all part of the running community. And that's just genuine to who I was. And I think people pick up on that and they feel seen by me when I'm at events and things like that. And so I thought, you know, Picky Bars can be a, um, a nutrition brand. You know, we have bars, oats, and granola now, and all of our branding can be around, yeah, it's okay to try hard at stuff. Um, it doesn't mean you have to be uptight. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to be, you know, hierarchically put yourself over somebody else to do it. You can have a good time. And so that's the spirit that we pull into the brand as well. So then it's kind of like sometimes I think it is confusing to people in a good way with Jesse is putting out, my husband is putting out information similarly around his values with triathlon post about a big race. Yeah. And I'm doing something about my running or coaching over here and Picky Bars has something here. It's like someone might not remember if they read about it on Picky Bars or if they read about it on my blog yeah. because there's such a good values overlap. It's just so interesting to me because I, I think it can be so hard to see yourself mm -hmm. and to know like how others see you. Yeah. And it seems like you had to go in this process, probably also by being like a public figure yeah. and being used in advertising and being out there at events and all those types of things that, you know, honestly, like every small, medium-sized business should do this mm -hmm. and they should figure out what their values are and the people inside those businesses should figure out what their values are and that's how you figure out what brand values yeah, are. Yeah, absolutely. But, you start there with your individual values. But it's scary, right? It can be scary mm -hmm. to try to be like, well, why are people actually connected with me? Yeah. It definitely. seems like I would, just from my vantage point, only having met you today on the track, <laughs> uh, <laughs> It seems like you're someone who really cares about making the world better, too. I do. I genuinely really care about that. You know, that drives me every day. And I don't know, I just, I feel like if I can do good with the businesses I'm a part of, great. If not, I'm not interested in having my own business. What's the point? Exactly. I'm with you. What's <laughs> the point? It's too much work. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> but yeah, if you can harness it in the direction you want, it's so satisfying. You wake up every day with a purpose. You get to you scale know? your values. Yeah, It's you like do. how I feel about Wistia. I love what I do every day. That's amazing. Um, and for us, it was like the moment that we bought back the company a couple of years ago. It was like, well, if we're going to do this, 
fuck it. You know what? <laughs> yeah, let's do we're it. going big we're, and we're doing what we believe in yeah. and we're not going to sacrifice. Yep. And it's like, I try to, I try to ask myself those questions all the time. Like, is this still fulfilling for the way mm-hmm. that I want it to be? Like, am I living the life we want to lead? Are we building the brand of the company we want to build? Yeah. That's the point. That's right? the point. Yeah. As soon as you lose that, the business loses its fire. Yeah. And I think if it's not like compelling to you, it's not going to be compelling to somebody else. Yeah. So yeah, that keeps me going. I think the other thing that was kind of interesting to learn was that near the end of my second Nike contract, I wanted to start a family. And that was really incompatible. You know, it's been all over the news. New York Times, yeah. there's been a lot of stuff about it. It's really incompatible with um, the traditional right? sports industry and the way contracts were written and everything at that time. And not just with Nike, but pretty much every major brand. And I just didn't get it because I was like, what you're trying to do is sell apparel and shoes. And so, you know, having a kid is not a part of every woman's journey and man's journey, but it is a part for a lot of people. And so this is really just an opportunity for a different kind of storytelling. But somehow this model views that as worth $0. And this might actually be worth the most of all. Um, Well, it's the the underserved market too, right? Yeah, Yeah. the story's never told. It's the market that's not being served. Exactly. There's obviously people who are making maternity clothes Mm -hmm. and they're doing well and like yeah. Nike were getting that game and like really invest like totally. probably an enormous opportunity but they just like didn't have their eyes open yeah and so I was kind of trying to push in a similar way for changes in that direction so that I was like I can help kind of be the first person to try to tell the story this way and was trying to get people on board and I just I some people were into it and some people weren't it was really it really was challenging for me to see how hard it was to make a change like that but then around that same time, there was a startup, maybe three years older than Picky Bars. And I had been sort of admiring them for far women-owned business. You know, maybe you get them on your show sometime. Awesome. Um, Wazal, they're based in Seattle. They're very small, like maybe like a million in revenue th- that year. And I was like, you know, it would be a dream. Dream would be if that company could afford me. Yeah. Because I felt like my values and their values were completely in line. And I mean, I just love that scaling your values phrase because that is what it felt like. It felt like a huge opportunity to, to do that and, and actually have like a team that doesn't need to make a big leap or stretch in yeah. order to do what you already want to do. They're already lined up. And that ended up, I was kind of getting doors shut in one place and doors enthusiastically open, like swung open in this other business. I was like, this is awesome. Yeah. So I jumped ship. So I've been um, with Wazel since January of 2013. And they have since taken two of the biggest names in in sports, like in women's sports, um, into their own. That's brand. incredible. Yeah, it's really neat. So it just kind of shows that that I think that a lot of businesses are afraid to kind of put their values out there and really take a stand because they're afraid they're going to um, alienate some people. But what you really do when you do that is do a deepening and thickening with the people who are already a better match for you. Yeah. And yes, you will lose some people. But like Wazal, for example, is a really openly feminist brand. Like they just launched this line that 20% of all the proceeds go to Planned Parenthood. See, that's a that's, pretty divisive thing yes, to put on is. the internet, yeah. right? <laughs> and they just were like, well, here we're goes. Yeah. Bing, yeah. like yeah. Yeah. <laughs> post. Yeah. And um, it, it's like one of those things where those are their true values. And then... Some people will leave and other people will be like, hell yes, you know. Well, you were, obviously. Yes, And you I was. left Nike yeah, to go there. To do that, yeah. And you, I would assume, took on more risk in doing that. Absolutely. And I worked harder than I've ever worked for any other brand in my life. Yeah. And they brought me in as 
um, a partner as well because they couldn't afford, you know, they couldn't afford my salary. This way a lot of startups yeah. operate, but I don't know how common that is in the sports world to be kind of an athlete and have someone say, here's like have a stake in the business. A stake in the business. Yeah. And that really motivated me. And I think that that's one of those pretty creative things. With picky bars, obviously everything I do hopefully has a return one day as a business. So if I feel connected to it. It's my baby. But Wazal was the first brand that it wasn't mine. I didn't create it where I had a similar feeling. And I, it just, it challenged me to be like, what can I do to help this win? How, like, every, what, how can I use my skills better or whatever? And co- comparing that to just like a, a regular sponsorship deal, it was night and day. And it kind of makes me think about that as a business owner with picky bars, like how can I incentivize ambassadors differently or employees differently? Because if they feel that sense of connectedness to the, the business, they're going to work harder and smarter and all that. Yeah. So, and bring more of themselves to work every day, which is sweet. That's awesome. Yeah. So you have picky bars mm-hmm. and you have Wazelle. In both cases, your values align. Yep. Piggy bars incredibly deeply. Mm-hmm. Wazelle, it turns out, also very deeply. And then you need to market your values as you market these businesses, as you are an ambassador. Yeah. Um, how do you actually do that? Well, in Picky Bar's case and Wazelle, there's a lot of overlap, not surprisingly, <laughs> since I'm involved with both. But we both um, both businesses, a big value is come in here, we love you. Um, especially with the running community, can be people can be made to feel othered, you know, and um, outnumbered, and not fast enough, and um, not a real runner until I fill in the blank, or not a real athlete until I fill in the blank, right? And so we both businesses really care about breaking those barriers down and have people be like, if you have a body, you're an athlete. If you go out and care about things, that's awesome. It doesn't matter what the clock says or what your finishing place is. Like it's all the rewards are in the doing. And, and so those are the kinds of stories we tell. We make sure that we tell a variety of stories from a variety of, of people from different races and ethnicities and body types and geographic locations and economic situations and entry points to sport, right? Like some are later in life, some were and as kids, and making sure that those stories become, are represented and, and, and be, create a chorus of like, come in here, you know, we want you. And I know that can sound a little bit different than narrow and deep, but it really is more about, it, the running community already is narrow, right? Or the endurance community is already very narrow. And so that is part of creating the depth and actually changing the culture, like using your brand to change the culture of the sport itself, to be more inclusive, to feel like more of one unit and less stratified. And I think that's positive. It seems like also what you're doing is you are now have an opportunity to shape how those athletes feel, like Mm -hmm. probably earlier in their career, maybe back to you when you were at Stanford. Like what is the brand that you would have wanted in that moment? Totally. Like, what is the opposite of the bigger brands that didn't care? Where's the models? And it's like, show me the real athletes. Show yeah. me people. Look. That's and you're in the position to actually do that for others. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's it's one of my favorite things is when coaching a young professional athlete, they have no idea it was ever any other way. Yeah. You know, it's like they totally take it for granted now. And I'm like, good. That means progress is happening. Obviously, way more progress needs to happen, but but yeah, that, that feels really good to me. That's amazing. Just to be in an industry long enough to actually notice change 
is pretty cool. That is so cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the world is changing and, and you got to change to keep up yeah. or you'll be left behind. Yeah. And I think a lot of the things you're talking about, which you're doing with Picky and you're doing with Wazell, smaller brands stay that hopefully will be much bigger. Mm -hmm. But if the big brands don't change, like they'll be left behind. Oh, yeah. They'll always be. I mean, that's just the nature of things. The bigger you get, the harder it is to pivot, the harder it is to be relevant, the harder it is to create genuine connections with individual people. So there'll always be room for startups and smaller businesses to make connections with people if they're willing to take risks. So what you're talking about, I think, is really, really compelling. And I mean, the podcast you do with your husband. Mm -hmm. I was listening to the episode that you just put out at the end of July. And you're talking about a lot of different stuff. You like you have the questions from the audience mm -hmm. that you always go through. You talk about how Piggy Bars is doing, mm -hmm. the challenges. Yeah, you're putting it all out there. Like, oh, literally, someone was like, "What is the point of this podcast? Like, does it do anything for you?" <laughs> and then the two of you are in there talking about it. It's wild. Yeah, it is pretty crazy. I mean, the podcast. What we sort of took into the business from our athletic careers was that. As a pro athlete, there was this myth that people will only care if you're one of the best in the world. But then I learned and my husband learned that people care if you can tell a story that makes them feel something, right? If they feel educated, entertained, or some other kind of feeling of pleasure or joy or sorrow or something in that heart connection, like that is, then people care. And they actually, you could be 15 seconds slower in the mile and they will be more loyal to you than the person who doesn't share any part of their journey and they just create world beater performances every now and then. And so we took that into business and we thought people, if we can keep people connected to the journey of Picky Bars and use this business, be transparent about our business so that our customers get inside looks into our struggles, our mess ups, and the things like even just being transparent about how we market to people. They will be along for the ride. Like they'll feel invested in this company and ideally cool if they buy more stuff. But even if they don't buy more stuff, they will, will be on their radar. Maybe they'll tell someone who might buy our stuff or whatever. So yeah, and it, I just feel like there's really no downside to it. Maybe I'll find out later. <laughs> but we do, we talk about it on the podcast regularly. I mean, creating the podcast with my husband and I was a way to create a new kind of content format to reach people that we weren't already reaching. Like we need a, we need a new way to get more people that costs us very little because we don't have very much money. And we can basically provide real talk, a deep look into like a 12-year marriage. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And the intersection of, of uh, it's called work, play, love. And so it's the intersection of work, kind of your athletic life and your relationships and how those things complement each other, conflict with each other. You know, anybody who wants to have a physical health, have a job and have a relationship is going to, going to relate with some of those problems, even if they don't relate to the specifics of a, a listener's question. And so, yeah, we just, um, it's turned out to really help the business a lot, actually. It's been Yeah, how has it great. helped the business? I think just by providing uh, a deeper way for people to feel connected to our story as individuals and the brand story. And, and if they feel like they get something of value from us, they have more of an affinity and a connection with us. So it's a little bit of like a leap of faith, you know, but we have noticed that club retention, um, our subscription club retention is better. Uh, direct sales on the website have been stronger. Like we're growing more than our expected amount. Could be due to a lot of different things. It's hard to know, but we know the podcast isn't hurting. <laughs> and with two small kids, 
it guarantees we get an hour together face-to-face once a week where we're talking about other people's problems (laughs) (laughs) for most of it instead of our own. So it is just good quality time. And I think that like just being able to share a little slice of of our lives and, and creating something that I would personally like to see more of, you know. That's so cool. Then cool. Yeah. Maybe someone else there wants It's also back to what you said earlier, which is like there's all these numbers. You can have analysis paralysis. Yeah. You can look at this and try to figure out like, I can't see how it's working or not, but you kind of know it's working, right? Yeah. I know, and my husband knows, we know on an intuitive level, it's a positive benefit for the business. And it is kind of one of those things where we want it to be because we enjoy doing it. <laughs> well, that makes That's it easier. That's the best kind of content, right? It is. Yeah, if you yeah. you have to find a model that actually you can repeat that yeah. is enjoyable. For me personally, like this brand wagon honestly has been so fun, mm-hmm. so it makes it easy to do. Yeah. But if it was not fun, then it would be very hard to do it. I think that would come through that it's not, that it's not fun. Yeah. And then suddenly we wouldn't be able to repeat it and it would be like pulling teeth. And now even if it was working, you wouldn't want to do it. And finding that match is so important. One thing that I really would recommend people at least consider who are small business owners is um, a CEO recap. Like, you know how CEOs will write something for their investors, a quarterly report or an annual report or whatever. But what my husband has done the last several years is write one just for the internet. Um, And he sends it in an email first to our club and subscribers. And the open rates on that are unbelievable. I'm sure. Because he's very honest and transparent about the business and people get to learn about business through you. They may not know anybody else who owns a business, who's made massive mistakes in business, you know? And so it's like a learning opportunity for people and they enjoy it. And, um, and so he's motivated to do it over and over again. And I think like there was fear at first about putting some of the mistakes out there or some of the numbers that may not seem that impressive or what will people think. But I think in the end, it makes people root for you more. That insight though is really, um, really important. Mm-hmm. Because the idea that people want to root for somebody, yeah, and they care, they've built a connection, and it's like if you have challenges and they know about them, mm-hmm. they want you to overcome them. Yeah, it's just like uh, um, something I tell people when they're going to give their first talk. You know, we have a lot of people who are giving their first talk, like whether they're at Wistia or they're representing yeah. Wistia out on the road, and some be super stressed. It's like no one ever went to a talk and hoped that someone did poorly. That's like the worst <laughs> thing on earth that can happen. Yeah. Like, all you're hoping for is that that person is going to show up and you're going to be delighted that they're going to mm-hmm. be really good. And you're rooting for them. Yeah. Even your your greatest enemy will not want to <laughs> sit through an hour of pain. Like they would prefer to root for you in that moment. It's true. It's like a, it's an instinctual thing. Mm-hmm. We want people to improve. We want them to do better. Um, One of my writing teachers, uh, Lori Wagner, she really encourages kind of brave writing. It's another thing that I do on the side that sort of helps me with my other business pursuits. But um, her her saying that she uses when encouraging people to take a leap and to take a risk and put some skin in the game in their writing and write something that you'll then later read that might make you look judgy or ugly or small or some other thing, but it's true. She says, what if they already love you? She's like, tell yourself, what if they already love me? What would I say if I knew they already loved me, right? And so I think that that guiding principle helps me with business risks too, like that of letting people in on our story. Like, what if they already love you, that's you know? So, that's and so, cool. uh, so I would try that. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So this type of brand storytelling, where you're being your own spokesperson, it's happening more and more. There are more companies that are making podcasts, video shows. 
and people have to be the spokesperson. And what advice do you have for people who are jumping into that journey? I think the first thing you just have to do is decide your story is worthwhile. You have to work towards self-approval and release yourself from the outside definitions of approval in your industry. And then you just don't try to win everybody over. Be who you are. Get narrow and deep with people who resonate with you. Deepen and thicken those relationships and trust that if you are providing something of value to them and making them feel a certain way, it will spread in a direct way, one degree of separation from them to people who are actually interested in what you're doing. Lauren, thank you so much for being here on Brand Wagon. This was super fun. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. 